You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 4th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and a very warm welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up on today's programme. Every single American agrees, even the guy that wants to be Speaker agrees that Washington is broken. And he said as much in one of his most recent correspondences. McCarthy falls short. The U.S. House of Representatives fails to elect a speaker. We'll have the latest from Washington as a Republican revolt throws Congress into chaos. Also ahead, a boost for Turkey's President Erdogan as the rise of inflation slows and exports pick up. Plus record breakers for all the wrong reasons. We'll find out how in 2023 Europe is already warmer than ever. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. It should have been a distinct and decisive move to reassert Republican control of the US House. But yesterday's attempt to elect a new Speaker descended into what the New York Times has called a pitched floor fight, with political chaos not seen in the chamber in a century. Well, three attempts were made by Republican leader Kevin McCarthy to win the post of Speaker. Three rounds of votes later, he still didn't have enough support. Well, Chris Chermack is Monocle's Washington correspondent from where he joins us now. Hello, Chris. Good afternoon. Hello, Emma. Good to have you with us. What happened yesterday? Oh, my. I mean, it's 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 really incredibly extraordinary, Emma. And, and uh, maybe just to step back and explain what happened yesterday and why it is so extraordinary. Uh, it's the first time that a Speaker of the House has not been elected on the first vote in about a hundred years. And really it's only the second time, if you want, in US history since the Civil War uh, that this has happened. And the reason for that is because we have a two-party system in the United States. There are only two parties, one of which has the majority and one of which therefore normally elects the speaker at the beginning of any term. And again, to get at that reasoning, Every time there is a, an election for a Speaker of the House, there has already been an internal vote within the parties to choose their Speaker. This is what happened this time as well. Representative Kevin McCarthy was chosen by his own party, by 85% of the members of the uh, Republican caucus within the House of Representatives. Only 33 opposed his nomination when he was chosen uh, last year in order to get to this point. So that is sort of what gets at the incredibleness of what happened yesterday. What you saw yesterday was an open revolt where 20 Republicans by the end of three votes had voted not to elect their own representative as Speaker of the House, despite the fact that he had already won within the party itself. So that is why this is such an incredible moment. It shows this sort of open defiance of a of the sort of right wing of the party something that we just normally do not see you don't want parties to to air their dirty laundry out in public that's also what is of course so key about this it is embarrassing for any party to be so openly disruptive to be so openly not on the same page this is normally something that you'll have in arguments behind closed doors and all the rest of it ahead of something 
But at the moment where you actually need to have an election like this, then everyone is, you know, perfect friends and 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 wonderful together, and they all give the, the best speech in support of the candidate who won instead of the candidate who lost. That is not what you saw yesterday. So this moment of embarrassment came at absolutely the worst time, which is when the Republicans are taking control of the House by a whisker, but they are assuming control again, and you see these fissures being played out as openly as ever. Exactly. And I think that, though, what, what gets at uh, the problem as well is what you said there. The Republicans won the House by a whisker. They only have a five-vote majority in the House. And what you saw yesterday was a smaller band of sort of extreme right Republicans uh, saying, we are going to use that whisker of a majority. We are going to exploit that by not doing what our own party wants. We are going to try and get whatever we want from the leadership of the House of Representatives, from the leadership of our own party. We are going to try and extract as many concessions as we possibly can. And so while, yes, this was supposed to be a celebration of Republicans taking control of the House of Representatives, what it really shows is how incredibly difficult legislating is going to be over the next two years, whatever happens in this leadership race over the next couple of days. And practically speaking, because there is no speaker, nothing can be done in the chamber. So America's legislative process has stopped. Uh, it has literally stopped, uh, Emma. So the, the issue is that this is exactly how the House works. There cannot be any business until a speaker is elected. The members of Congress who were voted into the House in November cannot take their seats. They cannot take the oath of office because the oath of office is given to them by the Speaker of the House. So they are not even members of Congress at this point as a result of this stalemate. So there will continue to be votes throughout today as long as it takes until a speaker is elected. Until then, we have literal paralysis uh, of, led of lawmaking in the United States. That said, uh, as I was saying, I think what this shows is that even when this is over, there will be effectively a paralysis of lawmaking in the United States for the next two years because it is hard to imagine anything really uh, significant getting through the House of Representatives in this kind of environment. Just looking at the immediate muddle, we have Senator Kevin McCarthy. He tried three times to be voted in. He failed. He made concessions to both sides to try and garner support. Um, but the fact remains is that if he has to stand down or if he has to withdraw, who else could bring the Republicans together in a way that McCarthy has failed? Well, this is where the, the problem gets even bigger, frankly, Emma. Uh, there isn't really anybody else who can bring the party together. And, and more importantly, perhaps, and not more importantly, but why this is going to take a while as well, is because for many of the traditional moderate Republicans, the basically 90 percent of the party that is currently voting for Kevin McCarthy, they don't want to back down easily because if they back down at this point, then it does give these 20 Republicans who voted against Kevin McCarthy uh, a sign that they will be able to do this for the next two years, that they will be able to buck the party. So that is also why you are most likely to see a uh, continuation of this fight for a while until there is some kind of breakthrough that even perhaps Kevin McCarthy can accept. Now, 
given there is such a slim majority and these 20 Republicans are, are just as defiant, or I should say 19, but still on a small number, one sort of changed halfway through, 19 who are particularly defiant, um, it is incredibly hard to see Kevin McCarthy becoming speaker, turning those 19 in his favor. They would have to vote for him by name, which is what is also makes this so challenging. What you heard yesterday was going through the roll and each member of the House of Representatives having to say by name who they supported. So at some point, all that is possible is that Kevin McCarthy himself has to give up the fight, turn to somebody else. Who would that be? It might just be his number two. Steve Scalise, he's the second in command in the party. If that is enough for the the sort of radical elements within the party to simply say they beat Kevin McCarthy, and for the moderates, Steve Scalise, frankly, is no different from Kevin McCarthy in terms of his ideology, in terms of his approach um, to to governing. You know that you could see that being a potential compromise, but that also takes Kevin McCarthy himself saying I don't want to do this anymore. I am going to back away from this fight. At the moment, it literally, as many people have written here and said, it's a game of chicken and we need to see who's going to swerve first. Chris Chermack in Washington, thank you so much for joining us. The time here in London is nine minutes past midday. In a moment, we head to Istanbul. But first, let's get the latest news headlines. Here's Laura Kramer. Thanks, Emma. Moscow's military says the unauthorized use of mobile phones by Russian soldiers led to the deadly Ukraine rocket attack in Mykiva, raising the death toll to 89. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Moscow is planning a full-scale mobilization and is set to launch a major offensive. South Korean police say they will recommend charging local district officials in Seoul for the crush that killed more than 150 people in October. Victims want government ministers to be held accountable, but the police say they are not responsible for safety. Myanmar troops and weaponry have paraded through the military-built capital, Naypyida, to mark Independence Day. It took place just days after the junta increased democracy figurehead Aung San Suu Kyi's jail term to 33 years. And the Food and Drug Administration in America will allow retail pharmacies to offer abortion pills in the United States for the first time. It comes as more states seek to ban medical abortion. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Laura. It's just gone 15.10 in Istanbul. Let's head there now because ahead of Turkey's national elections in June, there's been a lot of news that could be a big boost for President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Uh, let's join our Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda-Smith. For more. Very good afternoon to you, Hannah. Good afternoon. Very good to have you with us today. Uh, so just explain to us what these these new stories that are emerging, which indicate that actually Turkey could be on a more stable path than it has been of late. Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, the first thing is the uh, inflation figures, monthly inflation figures, which were released yesterday and showed quite a significant drop from just over 80% to 64% annual inflation. Now, of course, that is still huge. Um, Turkey is still battling one of the highest inflation rates in the world. Prices are still rising, almost out of control for some things, and people are still suffering. You know, just in my neighbourhood, it feels like every day a kind of independently owned business is closing down. But it is something that President Erdogan can cling on to, something he can say, look, we're getting this under control. Um, and in fact, you know, since the beginning of 2022, um, you know, Turkish government experts have been saying, listen, inflation's high at the moment, but it is going to come down at the end of the year. So again, he can say, 
I told you so, this is what's going to happen. On the other hand, there are all kinds of questions about how reliable those official inflation statistics are. Um, we know that there has been some government interference with the official statistics board here in Turkey. Independent economists, uh, you say that actually inflation is running far higher. But for now, it's a bit of good news for Turkey, uh, for President Erdogan on uh, on the economy. I mean, when you mean it's good news for Turkey, explain a little bit more to, to the fact that it is that many people, if you are a Turkish citizen, you're seeing this news as less bad. It's, it, you know, the, your, the cost of living doesn't really noticeably change, does it? Right, absolutely. I mean, Stockholm Syndrome a little bit. I mean, yeah, when the news has been so bad for so long, it's a bit of a reprieve. But if you look on uh, Turkish social media, you'll find economists on there sort of reminding people like this doesn't mean that prices are falling. It just means that the rate at which prices are increasing has slowed down. Um, and, you know, I think when you go out onto the streets in Turkey, it is still very, very obvious that, you know, prices are rising almost out of control for some things, certainly for, you know, things like imported products. But you know, even for you know, Turkish produced food products, things like cheese, meat, they're going out of the reach of a lot of people. And, you know, the kind of effect of this over the past couple of years is really that the middle class is just being squeezed so hard that they almost don't exist anymore. You know, people who a few years ago might have gone on holiday several times a year, were kind of eating out at restaurants several times a month, they're just not able to do those things anymore. When it comes to how President Erdogan could use these figures to his advantage, it, we're, what, expecting presidential and parliamentary elections in June in Turkey. Um, there has been mention that the government could hold them earlier, ostensibly because they say everybody's travelling on holiday in June. But could this actually lead to a change in when we when we see one of the most important elections in the world this year? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, discussions in Turkey at the moment about exactly when these elections are going to be held. June is the latest, um, the latest date it can be held. But really, you know, what President Erdogan and his central bank uh, bureaucrats are battling against here is not only the inflation, it's also the fall in the value of the lira, which has been dramatic. I mean, in the time that I've lived in Turkey the past 10 years, uh, the lira now is worth about a sixth of what it was against the dollar uh, 10 years ago. And in order to to um, kind of stem that fall, what the Turkish government is doing is it's using its foreign currency reserves, selling them off in order to buy lira and keep that lira propped up. Now, obviously, there is a limit to how long you can do that. Reserves are running pretty low in Turkey, and there's going to come a point where they're not able to do that anymore. And once the lira starts dropping again, inflation is going to start zooming back up again because almost uh, all of Turkey's energy is important. And of course, that has a kind of knockback effect on everything else. So really, the timing of the elections, I think, is going to come down to just how long Erdogan can keep this kind of you know magic that he's doing in the central bank going. Um, and if that's, uh, it seems really, really unlikely that it's going to be until June. And most economists think that it's not going to be much beyond early spring. One thing that has been happening, though, to the Turkish economy's credit is that exports have gone up and there's been a decision to allow Bulgaria have access to, to liquefied natural gas terminals. Now, just explain to us why that's important. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, the weak lira, um, 
of course, encourages exports. That's slightly offset by uh, both the fact that you know, prices for everything here in Turkey are rising. Things are just not as cheap as they used to be. Um, and also some new rules that the government brought in for exporters, which forced them to keep uh, some of their assets in, in Turkish lira rather than foreign currency, which makes things very, very complicated for them. Um, but yeah, the, this, uh, this news about Bulgarian use of Turkish gas is really interesting, particularly because of the kind of deals that Turkey is doing at the moment with Russia. Now, Turkey doesn't at the moment produce much of its own energy. That could change. Um, Erdogan says that Turkey has found uh, significant gas reserves in the Black Sea, which might come online uh, fairly soon and would allow it to export that. But also, you know, Turkey has offered itself as a kind of uh, way station country for Russia to bring its petrochemicals here have them refined here and then sold on elsewhere. And potentially that could allow Russia to keep on selling to European countries, places like Bulgaria, um, and sidestep the sanctions, sidestep side the European sanctions. Now, clearly that is not going to go down particularly well with countries like the US. And they have already warned Turkey that if this was the case, then Turkey might itself uh, be open to secondary sanctions. But again, I mean, ahead of these elections, I think really Erdogan is thinking very, very short termist here. Um, and you know, just thinking about how he can keep the economy afloat, how he can find some kind of good news to present to the Turkish public to persuade them to give him their vote yet again. Hannah Lucinda-Smith in Istanbul, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. Now, in 2019, Formula One launched its plan to be net zero carbon by 2030. It followed a report into its, into its environmental impact that revealed that the championship was responsible for generating more than a quarter of a million tonnes of CO2 emissions every single season. Well, nearly three years later, what is the sport doing to meet this target? Monocle's Emily Sands went to find out more. Formula One, a sport that started in the 40s, has now turned into a multi-billion dollar industry, travelling all around the globe every year to bring us nine months of jam-packed high-intense racing to crown the next world champion. But in those last eight decades, the world has changed significantly, and as a result of that, sustainability is a topic that is at the forefront of any organisation's business model. And motorsport has the perception of being one of the most harmful sports when it comes to the release of carbon emissions. In 2019, Formula One announced that they would be setting out a series of commitments to have a net zero carbon footprint by 2030. I spoke to Inga Stracker, a Formula One broadcast partner for Germany, Austria and Switzerland and sponsor of Make-A-Wish Foundation, to get a better understanding of what those plans are. For Formula One, it is a challenging approach, but at the same time, they know that they need to do it. It includes delivering 100% sustainable fuels. That is going step by step in a few years' time. I think it's well needed. I think it's um, very important. And also pointing out that that means Formula One is not just looking at the fuels. It's looking at biofuels. They're looking at events, talking with their race promoters and the on-site people at every race. They're looking at their own operations. They're also looking at diversity and inclusion. So it is an overall program, super interesting 
And if you know Formula One as I do for many, many years, it's great to see. However, in September this year, Formula One announced that they would be increasing the amount of races for the 2023 season. This would leave us with 24 separate race weekends, the highest number of races planned for a season in the sports history so far. There was speculation that this was a huge step backwards in the goal to being carbon neutral by 2030. In general, a lot of the people involved working in Formula One, especially mechanics and such, who really are on the road a lot, they think it's too many races. But then again, it's all about the show, it's all about the money. Formula One has already said that they are looking at the calendar to make it even more to design it more environmental friendly with races like Canada and the US and um, South America grouping them together. A common misconception in the sport is that the race cars are the reason why CO2 pollution is so heavy at race weekends. But this isn't the case. Logistics are the main contributors. In 2021, data collected showed that 45% of the total 265,000 tonnes of CO2 emissions came from logistics and fan travel. Of course, it's good for every sport to have more fans, more action, new races, good for the sport. The drivers have been two-sided. People like Sebastian Vettel have said, if you put in more races, there has to be a cut where it's too many and where there can't be more edit. Also look at the calendar, look at the transportation, Look at everything that is involved and see if you can still achieve the sustainability goals that should be above everything. Four-time world champion Sebastian Vettel has been very vocal about climate change in general and also within his beloved sport. He mentioned that Formula One's approaches to sustainability influence his retirement at the end of 2022. But are statements like this from the sportsman himself enough to influence the FIA and Formula One into making wiser decisions moving forward? I think they already have listened and they already have changed their ways, not just because of Sebastian Vettel. I would have wished for him to continue racing because as an active racing driver, he does have or he did have a very loud voice, just like Lewis Hamilton with his diversity programs, with his actions that he's taking, with his a foundation that he has started where he's really actively making changes, not just talking. After a lot of planning, BWT, official partner for Formula One and Alpine Formula One team, have been working to achieve Formula One's commitment to becoming 100% sustainable at race weekends by 2025. This began this year, as Formula One issued a list of six important steps that must be taken into consideration by all track promoters. Reducing plastic waste, evaluating local fan travel, the upkeeping of well-being and nature, the local communities, energy and carbon. Pirelli, Formula One's tyre supplier, has also been working to attain sustainable goals within tyre disposal. Well, Mario de Isola, the Pirelli motorsport chief, he said they're already looking and already working with an increase of renewable materials. They are working to the elimination of single-use plastics from on-track activities. And they are also working on an overall CO2 emission reduction by actually having only 25% by 2025. They also look at green energy electricity. And they're also looking at recovering valuable materials from motorsport tires at the end of their lives. So I think good potential, very high potential of increasing sustainability and therefore helping not just Formula One, but motorsports overall. I asked Inga about Formula E, the single-seater electric racing series, and the chances of them possibly overtaking Formula One with their sustainability goals. 
Formula One has a lot more chances than Formula E because Formula One can work with the biofuels, with the green fuels. They have the most efficient hybrid engine. And that can be seen as a leading example that can be looked at by all car manufacturers, actually, who are already or planning to produce hybrid engines. And that in combination with the sustainable fuels can actually be, and don't get me wrong, be better for the environment and more sustainable than Formula E unless Formula E is able to produce their electricity 100% with green energy. And I'm hoping that Formula One will stay ahead of Formula E and they won't be overtaking them. Although it's going to be a long journey to get to 2030, it's evident that Formula One are aware of their impact on climate change and they are working hard on ensuring that their fans and workers can rely on a better racing, net zero carbon future. My thanks to Emily Sands for that. You were the briefing on Monocle 24. Monocle's December-January double issue includes our annual soft power survey that ranks the nations that have committed to winning friends with good diplomacy, cultural hits and even national cuisine. And there are some big surprises in our top 20. Beyond the survey, we look at which Icelandic brands are going international, meet the artists in Baghdad who want their nation to be defined by more than turmoil and return to Kyiv to speak with Ukraine's foreign minister. This is a war for identity. This is the war between Russia as a state and the people of Ukraine. I think it's impossible to win a war against the people. And we've packed plenty of fun in too, with our roundups of the best bookstores, a look at the revival of the stationery shop, and our list of New Year's resolutions for 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's December-January issue today, or subscribe to get instant access online. And you're back with The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. The time here in London is 12.25. Now, the year may be just four days old, but 2023 is already breaking temperature records and by significant margins. Registering more than four Celsius in Belarus and temperatures in France are the warmest for 25 years for this time of year. What to tell us more is uh, Dr Ella Gilbert, a climate scientist at the British Antarctic Survey. She joins me on the line now. Hello, Ella. Happy New Year to you. And to you. So could you just describe how the new year is looking in terms of climate and temperatures, please? Yeah, so I mean, even on January 1st, we saw some extremely warm temperatures that broke records. As you mentioned, in Belarus, the temperature record uh, was broken by four whole degrees. Um, and that was not just in that one place. It was broken by a very significant margin all over Europe in, in many different countries. So we saw this extremely warm air that was over pretty much the whole continent, um, causing all of these temperature records to fall. Now, this is off the back of what was the warmest year on record last year in many places. Exactly. So 2022 was the warmest year in the UK, but also in many other European countries. And even if it wasn't the warmest year in many, it will have been one of the top. Um, we know that globally, um, the eight warmest years are the last eight years. And you only have to look at the headlines to see that, you know, that every single year it's in the top 10 at least. So this is kind of evidence or just anecdotal really of, of how climate change is having really significant impacts on our climate 
um, as and our weather. So this is now becoming the moment when we feel climate change happening on a day-to-day basis rather than us seeing reports of climate change happening elsewhere, especially here in Europe. How much does what we are seeing now tally with what people like you have been predicting? Well, while we have had extreme weather or warm periods forever, uh, regardless of climate change, these sorts of warm periods are happening much more frequently. They're more intense when they do occur. So that deviation is like four degrees above uh, normal rather than the tenths of a degree that are that are usual. Um, and they are much more prolonged when they ha- occur. So extreme events and warm events particularly, we know have been predicted to become more frequent, more intense. And this is exactly what we would expect with a warming climate, because we're starting from a warmer baseline, if you like, as we warm our atmosphere. So far, we're on about 1.1 or 1.2 degrees Celsius above uh, where we were about 250 years ago. So we expect that these sorts of extreme events are going to continue to happen as we go into the future, unless we do something very dramatic to change our course. Well, let's talk about this, these dramatic things that we need to do. I mean, you in the past have said we have to level up the ambition of our climate policies and deliver on existing pledges. What are your thoughts on terms of whether governments are stepping up enough? Because I think a lot of people saw what happened at COP27 as maybe not quite as uh, as, as ambitious and and and, and daring as, as you were all hoping for. Exactly. And I mean, the science is extremely clear that we are not doing enough and we're not doing it fast enough. So we need to dramatically upscale our ambition. I'll repeat myself from uh, from before we have to be more ambitious we have to really pull our finger out essentially and and make sure that this is the last year where we can dilly dally because ultimately we know how urgent this problem is we can see it we can feel it all around us it's not just something hypothetical in the future now it's already here it's already happening and hopefully this will help people and governments and businesses all wake up and realise that this is something that's worth taking action on now. Some people have suggested, though, that we're backsliding, because if you look at what happened in 2015 at COP21 in Paris, there was that great incentive and decision to work together to to combat uh, climate change. What's gone wrong since then? Because we're seven years down the line since that happened. Exactly. And um, the science has been continually reinforcing the idea that you know, Paris was a really landmark achievement, but having that framework was the first step. We actually need to make good on our promises, essentially. And that's the real key. That's the difficult part, because we can all promise and pledge to our heart's content. But unless we're actually following through on those promises, and those pledges, the climate is still going to continue to change and we're not going to avoid those worse consequences. Dr Ella Ella Gilbert, climate scientist at the British Antarctic Survey, thank you so much for joining us. And that's all we have time for today's edition of The Briefing. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producer, Tom Webb, and our studio manager, Nora Hall. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time, but for now from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. 